0: Hello book lovers and welcome to May's instalment of The Vintage Podcast. This month we're exploring the world of The Outsider. Alex Clark, and in this month's podcast, we're discussing the counterculture. What better time to do it? Celebrating books and authors that go against the grain. We'll hear train spotting legend Irvin Welsh talk about his friendship with Britain's most wanted man, Howard Marks. Author Tracy Chevalier discussing taking on Shakespeare's most tragic outsider in New Boy, her remix of Othello. And we're also joined by essayist JD Daniels, who walks us through the art of creating a mess so you can put it back in order. In the mid-80s, Howard Marks had 43 aliases, 89 phone lines, and owned 25 companies across the world. He was Britain's most wanted man. A drug smuggler and cannabis advocate who, at the height of his operations, smuggled consignments of up to 30 tonnes of marijuana, all the while being tracked by MI6, the CIA, the IRA and the Mafia. But to those who knew him... Howard Marks was Mr Nice, a man who lit up any room he was in, who knew people everywhere from all parts of society, and who treated everyone the same. Mr Nice went on to be the title of his autobiography. Irving Welsh, author of Trainspotting and most recently The Blade Artist, wrote an introduction to the 21st anniversary edition and joined me to discuss the man and the legend and why Howard Marks could never write fiction. Ervin, it was a thrill to read your introduction to this new edition of Mister Nice um, because it was so personal. Just tell us a little bit about you and about Howard.
1: I kind of met Howard just before Mister Nice came out, and he just got out of prison, and he was sort of fated by his kind of London trendies and the you know the journalists and everything like that. That's that kind of circuit, and um, you know the whole kind of acid house thing was. from... Um, was still quite big and Clubland was quite a big thing. It was that cool Britannia era and um, we were kind of thrown together really because we were both, I mean, he was quite a bit older, I was maybe a little bit older than the sort of, um, you know, I was an ex-punk, he was an ex-hippie and we were kind of in this different era of, um, of, of kind of acid house, basically and uh, we both took to it like, a du- like ducks to water. I mean, he was making up for lost time coming out of uh, jail. We had a kind of quite a, a cool friendship. Um and it was nice to to go you know, to go out with them with Howard because um you know, train spot and I'd come out and I'd become this kind of celebrity figure and people would come up to me and they'd want to do drugs with me in clubs and all that, you know, and 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 um and I would say, Oh, have you met Howard Marks? you know so that was great a great <laughs> way of kind of uh, deflecting everything. Like and
0: that. you were two debut writers together.
1: Yeah, I mean um Mr Nice came out kind of just not that long after mm. Spotting, mm. and, you know, everybody knew who Howard was basically through the, you know, all the newspaper stuff about him but the the book and how he actually responded to the book made him a kind of bonafide celebrity. He started doing all the readings and then uh, he started doing more detailed kind of presentations around Mr Nice and uh, basically took that show on the road and... He was always kind of um, he was always around any party you went to in London he would be there or any nightclub he went to he would be there. Um, he went there we we both hung around the Tardis which uh, was George Parrish and Nick Reynolds' space in Clerkenwell, which was a great place because they never let any journalists or media people in. It was all artists and villains and you know so nobody really every everybody used to write about the grouch shows thinking all the, the the you know the the wild and weird stuff that went on there. But um, these people wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds in uh, the TARDIS and Clerkenwell.
0: It was basically on the side of a tube station.
1: Yes. It and was, you it kind, was of, kind went, of
0: went went in yeah, and it was, it was
1: huge, wasn't it? it? It went on, it was a labyrinth of different rooms and um, you could wake up there, you know, and you could sort of, um, you, you, you woke up in some strange room um, on these cushions thinking, where am I, what am I doing, you know, kind of, and then you wander around for for weeks almost, like when you bump into someone else who's equally lost. And sometimes that person was Howard, you know.
0: <laughs> Howard, of course, by this point, as you say, had had a huge amount of life behind him. Yes. Um, and actually, you bring it together in a kind of brilliant sort of capsule way, this upbringing in South Wales where he looked around at all these people, hard drinking around him and thought, and yet this this drug that I like is illegal. What sense is that? Then from there... To Oxford University,
1: yeah. I mean, he had this very, he had this very rationalist kind of sense that um, a lot of people from that kind of, you know, that these working class kind of socialists um, from that era had. You know, it's like this is kind of just wrong. It's just silly, and uh, let's kind of make it better. Let's make it right. So it was as well as you know being a guy who actually liked cannabis. He actually enjoyed cannabis in a way that I personally never did. But um, That was his drug of choice, and it was like, and he he kind of resented that he couldn't just buy it across the counter, and uh, it was it was as much a kind of um, you know as much as the the hedonistic thing of enjoying and wanting to smoke it more freely. It was almost like a kind of crusade. It was like a political crusade as well as this kind of. um, this kind of outlaw thing about um, outwitting the establishment, outwitting all the officials that kind of that, you know that, that would stop him from kind of uh, taking this drug. An interesting thing about him was that he never ever um, he never dealt kind of you know sort of other drugs like you know he had a chance to deal ecstasy, he had a chance to deal heroin, and he just wasn't interested. You know he was very much. Um, he was. He, he didn't really know what the effects of these drugs would be on society, but he, he didn't think they would be good effects. But um, he couldn't see any downside in you know, the, the the widespread um, sort of legalization of marijuana.
0: This is not, um, at least now, uh, a view that wouldn't be that. That view would be shared by a lot of people, and yet Howard. I mean paid very heavily for for yeah that i choice. mean he was
1: he was he was an anti drug crusader he was a political activist and because he was such a an outgoing kind of live wire sort of personality and people enjoy enjoyed being with him liked his company and he was you know he was hedonistic he loved the party, but he was in in this way in terms of um he was a you know how he felt about things he was a very very serious guy he was very very serious about mm-hmm. his kind of um His kind of anti-drug prohibition kind of crusade, and uh, he never let up. And even right at his, um, basically almost about to die, he was still incredibly. He did this um, just before his death. He did this talk in Camden, and he was incredibly sort of um, righteous and strong, and kind of giving off this glow of um, you know a kind of Dylan Thomas raging against the dying of the light. And he was just you know it was just an incredible performance to see him talk with such kind of passion and such blazing certainty and such kind of um, scoring of the stupidity of the world that we've created.
0: It's a, a very interesting um, theme that you bring out, which is how much somebody who comes from a certain background can join the establishment, but never really be part of it. And I wondered how much, apart from his sincerely held views about drugs and drug legalisation, there was also that rage at the hypocrisy of the establishment and just wanting to tear it down.
1: I think so. I mean, a lot is made from, you know, like a, a working class kid who from the Valleys who gets into a, a kind of decent grammar school and who then gets into Oxford, he kind of, you know, he breaches, you know, this this kind of thing. And the idea is that you're kind of co-opted into the establishment, but it's actually not the experience um, of a lot of people who go to Oxford and Cambridge. In, in a lot of cases, they see less talented people through their family connections kind of sort of make it into the, the top echelons of all the sort of business and creative industries. And that's kind of... Uh, that's very hard, I think, to to take if you're somebody who is very gifted. You know, it makes you feel that, um, that you know, that... Uh, You've you've um, you've gone so far to overcome all these kind of obstacles, but the odds are still stacked against you. So I think he kind of um, the interesting thing is that he felt that I think quite acutely as anybody would. But um, he also got on well with a lot of people from upper middle class backgrounds. He, he liked he, toffs, yeah, he if liked, they were nice. Like a lot, yeah, like a lot of working class people, he, he did actually like toffs. It was like kind of um, in many cases, it's like with working class people and. Um, in upper class people that you know they they don't really they're not really encumbered by this kind of sort of morality that a lot of middle class people want not I don't mean a morality in that classic sense but a kind of sort of priggishness and disapproval that um you know so I think he, he vibed with the um vibe with the decadence of of toffs basically
0: there was this fantastic thing that in Oxford Uh, At one point, he was operating out of some rooms above a ridiculously posh dress shop, which specialised in the selling of ball gowns to people going to their May balls. And I was that was sort of encapsulated one of the things about him.
1: It's crazy, you know, and, and he, he moved effortlessly in all companies, you know, I've been, you know, as I think I, I said in the introduction, you know, I've personally been in a company with him with, you know, like minor members of royalty, I've been in the, the company of kind of gangsters, and I've been in his company with just peop- people in clubs and, you know, and he never ever kind of talked down or deferred to any of them at all, he just was always himself which is kind of paradoxical because he spent so much time on the run being this supposed master of disguise. Really, it, you know, his, his disguises in some ways were, were so ridiculous that it's, it's almost an indictment of the stupidity of the authorities that they couldn't detect him.
0: Was, apart from your sort of personal affection for him, was part of you attracted to that? Because it's the kind of thing one might read in one of your books, actually, that kind of life that's stranger than fiction.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because most people, you know, I mean... Life is stranger than you know life is kind of stranger than fiction, and that 's our inspiration for it but most people 's lives aren't most people 's lives are pretty kind of sort of you know routine and sort of mundane um and uh you know we we kind of um we write fiction because we want to kind of amp up what 's happened you know, we want to we want to make the exceptional parts of our life more kind of routine and that 's how we, we we write fiction. Howard's life was all pretty crazy. It was all, you know, he was he, he led the craziest life of anybody I think I've ever known, and um, because of that, I think that's why you know you always thought I always thought to myself why doesn't Howard write fiction, and I think because his own life was so strange that. Um, it would be impossible to fictionalise it in some ways. It would be impossible to draw inspiration for kind of, you know, his creativity wouldn't be focused in that direction.
0: And just finally, um, it was great sadness when he died. He wasn't a, a very elderly man at all. Um, do you feel that he achieved some of the things that he wanted to in terms of his campaigning work?
1: Uh, I think he achieved a lot. I think he kind of changed the way people think about, uh, about drugs, the way people think about it. Um, where drugs kind of sit in our whole social landscape. Um, and, it, you know, but I think he was taken too soon. I think that um, now the, the great changes that we're having, the great economic and social changes that we're having, you know, the kind of end of capitalism, the move into conceptualism when we make these... Um, You know, we're not making kind of physical goods. We're making intellectual goods. And, you know, our economies are flatlining. We can't pay wages. We can't pay profits anymore, you know. So I think that would have fascinated them. And that move towards, you know, that battle between freedom and authority, the way things are now kind of politically polarising right across the world, I think that would have fascinated them. I think he would have been right at the forefront of it all.
0: Irvin, thanks so much. And thank you for that, that lovely introduction. Thank you. Tracy Chevalier might be best known for her historical fiction, Girl with a Pearl Earring, was a runaway bestseller, and her most recent work, At the Edge of the Orchard, earned praise for its gutsy female characters. This year, though, she departs for new and fresh territory, the school playground in her novel New Boy. New Boy is part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series, and it's a twist on Othello. The son of a diplomat, Oseko Kote, has just arrived at his fourth school in six years. He needs an ally to survive his first day, when in walks Dee, the most popular girl in school. But another student, the bitter Ian, plots to destroy the relationship of the black boy and the golden girl. I was joined by Tracy in the studio to talk through how this novel sprang to life. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just before, you were saying to me, it feels so odd to have a book out when you've just had a book out because you wrote a kind of, a book quite different from this. This is a special project. Just just explain. That's very much out of your rhythm, isn't it?
2: Yeah, normally I write historical novels that take a lot of research and uh, come out maybe every three years. And this book, uh, Shakespeare gave me the characters and the plot. So, uh, and I decided to set it on a school playground, an American school playground in 1974. They're all 11 years old and that was when I was 11. So I didn't have to do research per se um, because I knew it. I, I could remember what we wore and what we ate and what music we listened to. All these things that I would have had to do research on if I was writing a historical novel. It just came to me as memory.
0: Am I right to think that this is the sort of most recent historical period you've dealt with in your in any of your work?
2: Yes, I. Uh, I think the earliest I, the, the latest I was uh, was 1901 to 1910 with Falling Angels, and actually now I'm starting research on a novel that's set in the 1930s, but. Nineteen seventies, this is like real life. This is like, yesterday. Yeah, is like yesterday. So.
0: <laughs> well there is that thing, isn't there? I mean I think we're probably a very, very similar age. Yeah. Um the nineteen seventies do seem like yesterday to me too. Um and yet of course we're now at this point where we realise that you're gonna to have to explain that to some people who were not only not born then, but they were they were born much later in the eighties and even nineties.
2: Yes, so if I if I say the Watergate scandal or uh, mention Black Panthers, which I do in the book, Uh, people don't know who they are, what that fist raising of the Olympic athletes, the two American Olympic athletes in 1968 in Mexico City raised their fists in the Black Power Movement salute. And a lot of young people have no idea what that is. So yeah, there's some explanation to be done. Just Tell us a little bit about the setup. Um,
0: this we might call a reworking of Othello, but I know all the authors who 've written into this uh, series have often kind of have liked a different word. Um, Jeanette winterson, for example, calls it a cover version what well, well, yeah. what what 's the way that you think
2: about it? I think of it as uh, a story inspired by Othello, and actually, having said that, it does pretty closely follow the othello story so there is a um, uh, an all-white playground uh, school in suburban Washington. And one day, um, a black boy walks onto the playground. He's the new student. And it's about what happens to him over the course of the day. He meets a girl, Dee Desdemona. Uh, he, he meets the school bully, Ian, who is Iago. And Ian becomes jealous of... This boy, his name is Osei, his growing relationship with Dee, and he decides to drip feed jealousy and and uh, all that. All that Iago does, Ian does as, as an 11-year-old bully, um, and it has consequences. So it's. Uh, I decided to set it um, each act or five acts in the play, and there are sort of five... Chapters. Uh, so one is before school, morning recess, lunchtime, afternoon recess, and after school. So it more or less all takes place on the playground. There are a couple of scenes in the cafeteria and the nurse's room and, and in the hallway and things like that. But for the most part, it takes place out on the school playground where there are few adults. They kind of come in and out, but it's mostly the children's world. That's that's
0: so interesting because. Um Taking Shakespearean characters and making them children. I mean, if you think of somebody like Iago, which obviously you did... his knowledge of his own evil, his knowledge of his motives and what he wants to do is, of course, a really complex part of the play. Yeah. But when we think about children, we see them as acting in certain ways out of motives they really don't understand.
2: Yeah, they don't understand it. And um, and yet um, I think what's uh, the difference is that Iago may understand it, but we as the spectators don't understand Iago. That's why Iago is so evil, because he seems motiveless. We don't really know why he's doing, why he's tormenting Othello. And uh, in New Boy, Ian uh, is, 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 doesn't have that understanding of why he's the school bully, but we get a little more of that. So I give a little tiny bit more of his background of what his father is like, what his brothers, his brothers are bullies too, his older brothers, and he's sort of taking on the tradition. His father's very strict. And so there's a you get a sense of where he's come from. So in a way, I would say that Ian is not evil in the purest form. He's more of a bully that you you understand. You might not exactly have sympathy for, but understand better where he's coming from.
0: I would imagine that you also had to tread a very fine line between wanting to write about those universal topics, about the outsider who comes in um, to a closed circle, about exactly that, the bully, um, the person who acts in in ways that that they may not understand, and the specifics of the time, specifically the racial politics of the time that you were writing about the 1970s.
2: Yes, yes. Um, It was a balancing act, uh, for sure, between those two things. I think I tended to think of the uh, of the setup of the story um, as being something universal. In that, all of us have felt bullied at some point or other. All of us have been the outsider looking in, in, wherever we have not necessarily on a school playground, but in in some form or another, either at work or or in our social lives, we felt ever so slightly standing on the outside. We're not like everybody else, and how do other people respond to us? So that's the sort of more universal setup and then and then uh balancing that against the this the the racism of the time of uh, of the 70s which actually probably hasn't gone away but uh it's it's just uh, in different forms now but um i went to school in the 70s and i grew up in washington dc in an integrated neighborhood so the school i went to happened to be um mostly black i think there were uh, it was about a tenth white so uh, I was one of the few white kids in my class, and uh, I knew what it felt like to be uh, the outsider because of your skin color. So I thought back a lot about that, uh, about those times and what it felt like. It was very different for me, though, because I may have been white in a mostly black class, in a mostly black school, but I, even I was aware at that point that I was part of the majority of the society at the time. So my uh, the black students around me, my black friends, were having to deal with uh, racial discrimination outside of school in the wider society. So it's a, it's a very complicated. So even
0: time. at that young age, you would say you had a sense of some kind of larger societal privilege, even at yeah. the same time as you were aware of your own difference on a kind of daily basis. Yes, very much so. And. All this time to kind of work itself out into this this book.
2: Yeah, you know, I don't normally write about myself, and I wouldn't say I've written about myself in New Boy. And in, in some ways, this is different from my experience because the book is set on a, a suburban Washington playground, so the school is all white, and a black boy walks onto it. So that's you've reversed it. More tra- I've reversed. Yes. I've reversed it from my own experience, although it mirrors. It 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 follows the Othello experience. Mm-hmm. Um, So it was slightly different. Um, But nonetheless, I think, uh, as I said, you're balancing that other side of it, which is that all of us in some way, shape or form have felt like outsiders. And that's really what this book is about, about how not just about how it feels to be the outsider, but how the people around the outsider treat them. So the book follows, looks over the shoulder of four characters One of the things I did differently from Shakespeare is that he tends not to write big female parts, especially in Othello. Um, Desdemona and Emilia have small parts, and I made them much bigger in this book. So you look over the shoulders of four main characters, Osei, who's this Ghanaian boy who who comes onto the playground, Ian the bully, Dee the popular girl, and Mimi, who is a kind of seer of sorts. She gets migraines, she has visions, and she's um, a, a sort of Ian's girlfriend. And you look over their shoulders. And so three quarters of the book is actually about how these kids respond to somebody walking onto a playground very different, with from a very different background from them. Not just that his skin color is different, He's a diplomat's son. He's well-traveled. He lived in Rome. He lived in London. He's exotic. Um, and actually, Shakespeare, Shakespeare brings that out in Othello a lot, too. You talk about Othello. De- Desdemona is, is fascinated by Othello because he tells tales. He's a military general, and he tells tales of all the strange and exciting things he's seen in other countries, and she's really mesmerized by that. And similarly, Dee in this book is is really interested in how where oursay has gone and all the things he's seen, and so it's about their response to this situation of having an outsider in their midst and how they how they respond to that.
0: It's always fascinating when somebody undertakes this kind of project to ask them really what it felt like being up close to another work to the work of another artistic mind. At the remove of centuries, much written about, obviously, and much adapted. I mean, Othello exists in many, many versions. Did you feel it altered your perceptions of the play?
2: It probably altered them a little bit. It was was a little nerve-wracking, saying I'm going to take on a Shakespeare play because it's Shakespeare. Shakespeare is up on a pedestal. But Mm. actually, uh, the first decision I made was that I wasn't going to try to Imitate or or come up with some language that he used. I wasn't going to try to make my own telling anything like his because I couldn't possibly do it. Mm. And and once that that kind of let me off the hook a little bit because a a lot of what Shakespeare is about is how he how he uses language and how he tells the story. Um, So I could be relax a little bit. And then I, I reminded myself that Othello is a story that uh, Shakespeare took from an, uh, an earlier source, an, an Italian story. And so, so yeah, I'm recycling what he presented, and, and, uh, and that made it feel okay. And so then once I was looking at the story more closely at the play and rereading it and taking it apart a little, I began to think... Um, not be more critical of it. But certainly, as I mentioned before, one thing I, I find a little frustrating about Othello is that you don't hear much from Desdemona and Amelia. And I made it an executive decision I was going to change that and make the girls have a much bigger part in the story. Um, and, but also, it makes you really aware of what a play does to entertain the play is probably three hours, three or four hours long and there's a lot of subplots in it and I thought, Oh yeah, they've put in these so that there would be a fight scene and for the groundlings, you know, and just there's a lot of little intricate things going on and people mistaking each other for another couple in the window and this, that and the other, and it would all make sense on a stage. But some of those subplots didn't make any sense at all in the <laughs> novel. And so I simplified things. I removed certain things. And that's not a criticism of Shakespeare, but it's just very much an awareness of how a, a spectator, a, a play, somebody who goes to a play, is very different from somebody who reads a book.
0: Yes, it's a different form, it's Yeah, very different form. I wonder if I could just ask you a slightly sort of tangential question sure. about outsiderness i mean as you say obviously you grew up in the states you've lived in this country for a long long time you've set novels in all over the place in fact now you're in this country watching all sorts of things happening in your native country um aware of all the seismic things that are happening in your adopted country. I'm just wondering how that all kind of plays out, particularly when you are a creative person, when you're obsessed with story and narrative and workings out.
2: It's a really hard time to be a writer right now, I think, um, or any sort of creative person uh, responding to what we see around us, whether it's Trump or Brexit. Um, And uh, I have to say that Reading and about Brexit and hearing politicians speaking and hearing Theresa May, etc., um, it makes me feel really American. And then when I'm in the States and, or I hear, I hear what Trump does, I just feel really British. So it's <laughs> I do have both passports. I can vote in both countries. And I, um, I, I feel like I'm ping-ponging back and forth. On the other hand, having said that, I was over on a book tour um, just after the inauguration of Trump Um, And I was primarily in Trump states, Ohio and Missouri and Florida. And I, uh, although Trump makes me feel very un-American, being there with my people, I felt like I was with my people, um, whoever they are. I felt really American, like there was a, a, a kind of an atmosphere there of people are are worried and, and also excited in a way about, this is making us think about our government, how we are governed. And I would say the same thing has happened with Brexit. And, you know, if there's a silver lining to any of this, it's that we've been forced to think about what it means to be represented by somebody else in government. And that can only be a good thing to think about that rather than always take it for granted. I mean, I've called, I've called my senators more times um, in the last couple of months than I have in all of the rest of my life. And I've written to my MP a few times as well, and I had never done that before. And a lot of my friends have also Mm -hmm. been similarly engaged, and I think that that's a good thing. I think it's a little surprising for the politicians. Certainly American senators and congressmen have been flummoxed by this. They've had to take on more people to answer the phones, and when they go back to have these town halls, like the equivalent of a surgery that Mm -hmm. an MP would have here in their constituency... People have been yelling at them, and they've been—it's been really riled up. And I think that that um, there are some good things to come out of that, and it's that we don't take democracy for granted, and we don't take representation for granted either. Tracy,
0: thank you so much. Now, having come off the back of writing two books, you are now going to go into a, a fallow period, aren't you? Once you've told everyone about New Boy, you are going to retreat to the study. Because let's not forget you also edited an anthology about the Brontes. You've been spectacularly productive. Do you get some time, I shouldn't call it fallow time, writing time now?
2: Yes, I'm going to have writing time now. And I'm going going back to writing a historical novel uh, set at Winchester Cathedral in the 1930s. So I'm afraid fascism makes its way into it. Um, And I chose to, to that topic long before... People began referencing the 1930s in the last few months, so it's been really interesting. But yes, I'm I'm heavily into research now and just beginning to write.
0: We can't wait for it to come out. Thank you. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) J.D. Daniels has been many things. A night watchman, a janitor, an exterminator, a drunk, a patient in group therapy. But now he turns his attention to the page. His debut, The Correspondence, consists of six essays and it opens with his experience of training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, more accurately, having a weekly appointment in being beaten up. He takes us from the heart of America to the depths of his own mind as he goes temporarily insane in group therapy. I spoke with him about what he calls the terror of being alive, why he'd love nothing more than to drive across the United States, and the difference between a British and an American lock-in.
3: John C. Skaggs was born in Greene County in 1805, thirteen years after Kentucky became our 15th state. His son, Ben Skaggs, was born in 1835 in Bald Hollow and married Missouri Ann Carter. Their second eldest boy, Will Franklin Skaggs, had his pick of Pleasant Poteet's granddaughters. He could have had Delilah or Murty Scripture, but he chose Ella Green Poteet. Their third child, after Carter C. and L. V. Oman, was Sylvia May. Meanwhile, in LaRue County, Elmina G. Dixon married Bryant Young Miller's boy, and they bore a girl they called Mary Bothina Dr. Bohannon Sarah Lucretia Miller-Rock, who, mercifully, named her own son Charlie. Anne Thomas Jefferson Quinley's daughter Sophronia married Edwin Russell Wheatley and Begat Mildred Lucille, who married Robert Raymond Salisbury who called himself Butch Daniels, of whom we will not speak. Their son married Charlie and Sylvia's daughter and begat me, His Majesty the Ego, as Freud wrote in 1908, the hero of all daydreams and all novels. This happened in Kentucky, except for the Freud part. That happened in Austria.
0: Thank you so much, John, and indeed, here you are. At the end of that long list of very uh, Baroque names, some of them. That is your real family tree.
3: Yes, that's correct. And I guess I am... Uh, this is the end. This is the end.
0: I wondered, reading this book, which I find extremely hard to characterize in a couple of words. It's a series of letters from all sorts of places, uh, including group psychoanalysis. hmm Uh, which comes at the end and is perhaps the most sort of uh, extraordinary of the chapters, although that's a closer-on thing. Um, I find it very difficult to describe what it is. It's an unusual piece of writing. Just tell us a little bit about it.
3: Well, I think you've really hit the bullseye. One of my editors from a Los Angeles magazine recently called me a chaos addict, and I think that's right without being comprehensive. I was in Varanasi with my friend Jamie, and... His girlfriend said, why does Jamie like to get lost? And I said, Jamie doesn't like to get lost. He likes to go somewhere new, and that necessitates being lost. I said to her, I'm surprised that you haven't figured that out. The book is six letters that I did for the Paris Review. They have a tradition of closing the magazine with letters from abroad, but I couldn't be satisfied with that. So I wrote letters from home, and two of these stories were published under different titles. But we repurposed them for the correspondence. Letter from Level Four was published as Empathy, the quality the story lacks.
0: <laughs> I think it's fair to say that, that your letters from somewhere, I'm thinking uh, of your letter from Majorca, for example, is anything but what we might call travel journalism, even off-the-wall travel journalism. Hmm. I mean, for a start, that, that piece itself is incredibly mobile. Mm. You're all over the place on the high seas.
3: Well, this increasingly I indulge myself in the vice of self-quotation. But this might explain something. Captain Dorner just died last week. I saw him and uh, I said, Captain, you look great. He said, well, I feel great. You know, I'm just dying of stage four pancreatic cancer, but I feel great. And then he died. letter from Majorca. I already felt at sea, as they say. Lost in familiar places is another thing they say. I decided to spend some time at sea, where my bewilderment might make more sense because disorientation and chaos would actually be happening. Uh, This seems to be the fruitful mistake I keep making. Instead of trying to settle down my insides, I try to uh, go somewhere the agitation makes more sense. After I quit drinking... I felt like someone was beating me up all the time. And instead of calming down, I thought, well, I'll just go where people are beating me up all the time and I'll feel less crazy.
0: That is how the book opens, isn't it? As you get into mixed martial arts. Mm. uh, And in fact, you do give up everything. You contemplate giving up everything while sitting on the steps, smoking a cigarette.
3: Well, it's, uh, sacrifice is what uh, sanctifies things. And I guess the the more extreme exaltation i want uh, the more i have to give up <laughs> until there's just there's nothing left these are errors you know when i when i quit drinking one of the things they say at these places is half measures availed us nothing you know and i thought well isn't that how i got into this mess in the first place half measures availed us nothing
0: tell me a little bit about what you describe as the chaos inside, the agitation. Is that something that's been with you throughout your life?
3: Well, you mentioned the uh, group psychoanalysis nightmare at the end, the letter from the primal horde. It's an amazing experience. I wouldn't change it for anything. I think they ought to be in jail. I don't understand why they're allowed to do it. But it's fantastic. And what they do essentially is they experimentally generate psychotic anxiety to see how you're going to channel it. This is the answer to your question about chaos. There have to be tasks to to direct and transform this anxiety. Otherwise, you have a kind of body without organs. Did you ever you ever smash a fly? It's not a very nice thing to ask someone on the radio, but I've said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I, I guess I may have done it. The experience has not stayed with me. I have bashed a spider.
3: The color you see is from the pigment of the insect's eyes. The hemolymph is is the fluid that pervades the body, and it's clear. And uh, many insects don't have internal organs. They have a body without organs. This is, for mammals, psychologically, this is the way to overwhelming psychotic anxiety. You have to have channels, you have to have things to do, you have to have organs. This is why my country is going insane, because uh, unemployment is so high. People don't have something to uh, organize the, uh, the frank terror of being alive. So our recent election has lanced the psychotic boil of the United States.
0: Well, lanced implies a, a, a at least a kind of release. Is that what you think has has happened, and then a healing process?
3: Oh God, uh, let's let's hope so. Let's hope there's a healing process. Although it's hard to see our way to that now, isn't
0: it? It is. Um, the idea of channeling is writing a way of channeling.
3: Well, Burroughs said uh, he started writing because it gave him something to do all day. Uh, I couldn't go that far. I was raised Southern Baptist, which is uh, the other people of the book, real book worshippers. I didn't realize I was a sort of Stone Age man until I left Kentucky. I didn't realize, you don't know you've grown up in a hellfire cult, right? This is normal. Mm -hmm. These are all the people I love and admire.
0: And you were there until you were 30? Until I was
3: 30, yes. Mm -hmm. But I went to a, a museum in Boston after I'd moved there. And this sweet little girl was looking at a crucifixion. And she said to her father, Daddy, why have they nailed that man to that piece of wood? And I didn't know whether to be pleased for her that she was free of this burden or aghast that she was pseudo-free of the Captain Crunch decoder ring that will explain Western civilization to you. What does she think is happening when she walks through the museum? Uh, This is a roundabout way of saying, I, I think writing is a kind of book envy and, and God-bothering. It was very clear when I was a child that a book was the greatest thing in the world. and uh, But one book. Well, that one book, but... Uh, my mother was an English teacher, uh, and it's it's hard for me to believe now, maybe not for you, but... In, uh, in Oklahoma, in Kentucky, 30 years ago, they were teaching... Just plain regular kids with no ambition to be specialists. Chaucer in Middle English, Beowulf in Old English. Never mind if you're going to repair air conditioners later. This is not training professionally. This is what people need to know.
0: Education.
3: Education, yes. For its own sake. For its own sake, to, uh, to enrich your inner life, which you have to carry around with you everywhere you go, bound up in yourself. So between church league basketball practice on Monday, church suppers on Wednesday, Choir practice Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, lock-ins on Fridays and church services Monday, uh, Sunday morning and evening. And then a house full of books. I, I don't I don't see what other goal I would have had. It seemed to me to be the, the point of life to make books.
0: I'm just going to ask you to to clarify, possibly lost in translation, a lock-in.
3: Oh, uh Yes, it sounds horrifying, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a well, horror movie. Well, in
0: this country, no. It's it's a great thing in this country. It's being allowed to stay behind in the pub after it's closed. But oh! From, from context, I suspect that's not what you mean.
3: No, well, it's 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 something meant to be sweet. It's to uh, keep kids of a certain age from getting into trouble
2: uh-huh. out on the
3: street. We uh, we would stay in the church, and you know, sing all night. And of course, you aren't supposed to go out and and sin and have sexual relations. But, you know, the result is that you play kissy face behind the pew. Instead, you sneak off. Children or uh, teenagers won't be stopped. But that's what a lock-in is. It's a kind of half-willed Christian quarantine.
0: Okay. (laughs) It is very different from an English lock-in, I have to tell you. You're lost uh, in the book. You're lost. uh, Being lost seems to be Mm. a good and generative and productive place for you to be.
3: Well, I'm not a chaos addict. What I like is uh, is order. I'm actually desperately tidy, but in order to enjoy that, I have to have a mess. I have to seize a mess to take control of and tell myself that I've mastered it. First, I need the mess.
0: Tell us about what you're doing now. What is the next book? If there is a next book, what is the next set of writings?
3: Oh, well, there, there will be a next book, I'm sure. uh it just has to crystallize. That's all. You know, that's – typing is the easy part. That doesn't take any time at all. It's uh, having thoughts and feelings that's so uh, rending. You know, having a thought is not hard. Anyone can have a thought. It's, uh, it's connecting them in a cause and effect relationship that is really desperate. I had another book I decided not to write. I've just done a, an exciting thing for Esquire magazine. Can you imagine? <laughs> you can buy it at the airport. Uh, I drove through North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas in October before the election, uh, talking to people down this two-lane highway right down the center of America, and I went to Lebanon, Kansas, which is the geographic center of the 48 contiguous states, uh, just about as symbolically fraught as it could be. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that for them.
0: Uh, At this point what was your feeling about how the election would turn out? Were you with a lot of observers? Did you did you not think that Trump would make it, or did that experience lead you in another direction?
3: Well, the day he declared his candidacy, I said to my girlfriend, uh, you had better practice saying President Trump. You're going to have trouble getting the words out of your mouth. Uh-huh. I mean, that was just plain to me. Uh, disgusting, but plain. Mm. Uh, let's hope they let me back in my country for talking this way on the radio. uh as I drove through the country, uh, well, I I really I heard two main stories. One was was very reassuring, although not very accurate. It was a sort of talking point. Everywhere I went, people were saying to each other, and I heard on the radio, you know, Pope Francis. Now I'm I'm a Protestant, so I hope I don't say something foolish. But Pope Francis says climate change is the defining issue of our time, and Donald Trump says. Climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Now, who do you think the Holy Father would vote for? And I thought, well, that is beautiful. That is not really the way Americans are inclined to think of, uh, of religious citizens. Uh, but it's the way I grew up thinking of them. You know, my own father says, Johnny, I don't, why doesn't Jesus strike his name out of their mouths with a bolt of lightning? You don't have to guess what Jesus would do. You can read it in a book. He would help the poor. You know, he would help the sick. But the other story I heard in the middle of America was, uh, listen, it's very well known. It's well established that Hillary Clinton uh, has converse with demonic entities from the spirit world. Uh, Sometimes they identify themselves as Eleanor Roosevelt, other times as Mohandas Gandhi. But either way, this is necromancy and it is forbidden by Deuteronomy. You need to get your mind right. And I thought, all right, um, I I will try to get my mind right
1: about this.
0: So, in other words, those those people, the people who were listening to that narrative, felt that they had absolutely no choice. It wasn't a question of choosing between two political candidates. It was a question between choosing God and the Devil, in that sense.
3: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah.
0: Do you think you might want to undertake another road trip around America and see what's happening?
3: Oh, there's nothing I like better than uh, than driving. I don't. I'm not proud of this aspect of my character, but uh, there's no point in being ashamed of it.
0: There's a wonderful moment in the book where you are about to undertake a journey and you say something like, uh, I didn't have a Dean Moriarty by mm. my side, obviously reference to Carriacs to on the road. Um, but it strikes me, you, you kind of don't need one.
3: I'm talkative enough for two men. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I imagine there's a lot, of, a lot of ways that you can, you can occupy yourself. John, thank you so much for coming, and, well, thank you, for coming and talking to us about the book. It's a really, really intriguing book, and uh, I hugely enjoyed reading
3: it. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: And that's it for our dive into counterculture. Thank you to our guests this month, Irvin Welsh, Tracy Chevalier, J.D. Daniels. In the meantime, if you enjoy the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, as it'll help us reach more book lovers. Until next time.